what bothers me, quite frankly, about both parties going back 50 years is each government comes in and creates kind of a commission mentality. Going back to Trudeau and Chrétien with the White Paper and Citizens Plus, then you had the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry. Enough of the talk. Let's get some action done. That's Aaron O'Toole, leadership candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. He's our guest today on the Akamema podcast. and welcome to the Alchemyman Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Beldart, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. Our guest today is Aaron O'Toole. He's one of the top two candidates to become leader of the Federal Conservative Party. There's a vote that takes place this Friday, August 21st. Aaron O'Toole, he's a member of parliament for the riding of Durham, just to the east of Toronto, who was first elected to parliament in 2012 and served as Minister of Veterans Affairs in the Harper government. He is a veteran of the Royal Canadian Air Force and a graduate of the Royal Military College and also has a law degree from Dalhousie University. Before moving into politics, he practiced corporate law in Toronto. And I want to know that we also invited Peter McKay, the other conservative leadership frontrunner, to the podcast, but he was not available ahead of the vote. But Aaron O'Toole is, and I'm happy that he is available for us today. So Aaron O'Toole, welcome to the Akamema Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Chief. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. In your platform regarding First Nations policy, there's a segment there called Igniting the Indigenous Economy. Explain, give us an overview of that. And what do you mean? What are you trying to get at? Well, I think there's tremendous potential with the Indigenous economy and really Indigenous leaders uh, heading that up. And I really think uh, I've seen this since I was a lawyer in the private sector. As you said, I was a lawyer uh, in the corporate world before I ran for office. And I did some work with the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, pro bono work that myself and my law firm at the time did. We hosted meetings and conferences, and whether it was uh, uh, Clint Davis, J.P. Gladue, the leadership that I worked with in that time, uh, I was really, really impressed by the level of commitment, innovation, and just the depth of uh, Indigenous leadership in a lot of SMEs across the the country, small and medium-sized enterprises, some in the resource and and in benefit agreements with with uh, large resource companies, but even small supply chain uh, companies and, and, and small businesses. Personally, I think that reconciliation is participation in the economy to the best extent possible. It's collaboration, it's uh, partnership. And so I think this is going to be a focus for me. It's been something I've been talking about since I became a member of parliament is really igniting that potential And where can we take it so that where the federal government wants to see reconciliation being a a constant theme of of what we're doing as a government, that economic potential, the benefit to uh, First Nation families on or off reserve, that's going to be a focus for me. And I, I really think it plays well to the free market principles of the Conservative Party as well. So it's been a big part of my campaign, not just this time, Chief. 
I ran three years ago. I came third. Mm -hmm. I had a great set of policies in that. Uh, and they were developed in consultation with some First ne uh, Nations leaders. And uh, I'm very excited about implementing them. All right. In your platform, you talk about a national resource revenue sharing summit. You also talk about implementing a national indigenous procurement policy, which is always huge. And then part of that, though, is also having access to capital and dealing with the bonding issue. And then post-COVID-19, you know, in terms of developing an economic recovery plan, how do you see First Nations fitting into an economic recovery plan? And even in the sense of there's this theme now called building back better or trying to find the balance between the environment and the economy. What are your thoughts on some of those statements going forward? A uh, great question. You know, look, Canada is the best resource producer in the world. If you look at what's called environmental social governance, I know you're familiar with this ESG frameworks to sort of say, are you looking at the environmental impact and mitigating against that social impact, in, including benefit agreements and participation from Indigenous groups, both directly impacted or supporting a large project. And this overall governance theme, rule of law, uh, human rights records. I think Canadian resource producers, whether they're oil and gas, whether they're forestry, mining, minerals, we are world leaders in ESG. And in fact, the duty to consult and engage with Indigenous peoples developed now for over a generation in Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence has us at the forefront of making sure that resource development is done responsibly. You mitigate the impacts on the environment, but also mm -hmm. maximize the benefit for, for Indigenous communities and, and the direct stakeholders in a project. So this is where I think the relaunch of the economy is key and where I think igniting the Indigenous economy and, and leadership is central. I, I really do think that Justin Trudeau has left Canada more divided and less prosperous after four years of prime minister. Many of the ideological moves he made actually hurt Indigenous Canadians more than uh, other Canadians. If you look at the cancellation unilaterally of Northern Gateway Pipeline, for example, that was, that was owned, equity owned, to a one-third level by Indigenous communities. No consultation with them on the cancellation of the project. I view that as a, a violation of the duty to consult. I've spoken to, to chiefs like Dale Swampy and others uh, about the tremendous potential that these projects have. So I think as we position Canada as a global ESG resource leader, our First Nation leadership will be a key part of that of that brand. The world is going to use energy resources, in fact, rare earth minerals and other things we can no longer source from China, for example. Let's make sure that Canadian resources uh, benefit everyone, particularly Indigenous communities, and that we show that Canada does things right compared to the countries we compete with that don't consider environmental or social governance at all. Well, one of the two of the key points you put in there were equity ownership. And I think going forward, as nationally, we've always said that we don't want to just be bystanders anymore in the economy. On major major projects, you have to get First Nations people involved sooner than later, the rights and title holders, uh, and, and start looking at equity ownership, other than just revenue sharing models, but equity ownership in major projects. So that was a key, key piece. We're going to keep pushing all party leaders in all Canada uh, to make sure that First Nations voices are heard around those tables. I wanted to make that one point because that was a key point you made. The other one was why and i always stress this to people about getting our people involved 
because we always find the balance between the environment and the economy. Because our job as First Nations people is to protect the land and water. And so we want sustainable economic development. And that's something I need to stress to all leaders of this great, beautiful country, uh, are involved in our inclusion, but balancing and uh, and finding that sweet spot. What are your thoughts on that statement? Yeah, I think Indigenous leadership here uh, can can help us find the sweet spot, as you term it, better than anyone. Because as you said, that that direct connection, that heritage, that connection of providing that balance from time immemorial, uh, I think is is what development needs to take into consideration. So there's there's capital that needs to go into these these projects, no question, but there's also intellectual and cultural capital that needs to go in. And I think this is where First Nation leadership uh, on the ground from day one in these projects is great. It's why um, I was so disappointed to see the Frontier project uh, uh, stopped in Alberta because they didn't think tech didn't think they could get it by an ideological Trudeau cabinet. Tech's first order of business going back to 2008, I'm sure you know this chief, was engaging indigenous communities. And there were, I think, 14 benefit agreements developed over that decade plus of, of engagement. And what Canadian companies are now leaders in is not just the, the application approvals for exploration or, or development, there's actual partnerships now being developed as a result of our Supreme Court jurisprudence going back uh, 30 years where companies that want to have success partner very early and tech did that with the Frontier Project. I want to see more of that because I think the earlier you engage with Indigenous partners, um, as you said, those sort of title holders, those land owners, those guardian uh, owners of, of the lands, the more you're going to have success for the project in the long term. Last week, Aaron, we had uh, Prime Minister Mulroney on, and uh, he had some interesting comments. I'm, I'm going to share two points, and I want to get your thoughts and views on what he shared. Because in Canada, uh, he made two very important points that the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the RCAP recommendations, is a roadmap for uh, reconciliation in Canada if all those recommendations were implemented. I want to get your your points on 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 RCAP, and as well, he made a statement that rather than put your smartest, brightest, most effective and efficient person into finance or treasury board or global affairs or international affairs, I think that going forward, a prime minister elected in the near future should look at his very best talent and rather put him or her in finance should put him in charge of indigenous affairs. So what are your thoughts and views on RCAP in terms of implementation and on that whole point about having the most effective minister in charge of Indigenous Services Canada and our Crown Indigenous Relations? Uh, well, that's great suggestions. I have uh, great respect for Prime Minister Mulroney, and I think there's a lot to learn from RCAP. In fact, Chief, you might be shocked to know when a few years ago when I started researching things related to the missing and murdered Indigenous women's inquiry and the push to that when we were in the tail end of the Harper government. Um, I was the first MP to ask for substantive research to be done on RCAP in 10 years, according to what the library had said. I, I'm a research guy. I get into the nitty gritty. And what what bothers me, quite frankly, about our both parties going back 50 years is each government comes in and creates kind of a commission mentality rather than an action mentality. 
And I'll, I'll say, going back to Trudeau and Chrétien with the white paper and Citizens Plus, then you had uh, Mulroney with uh, with Meech, and then ultimately Charlottetown, the Charlottetown portion having more Indigenous engagement than, of course, the original Meech round. Then there was the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's uh, Inquiry. You know, some of the underlying issues in MMIW were brought up in RCAP. Mm-hmm. It's enough enough of the talk. Let's get some action done. And that's why I've said I view drinking water on reserve as a human right, and it will be a priority that that I'm willing to to do anything to make that human right a reality. I think there's been some progress made in the last few years, but I'm willing to to see leadership from all sectors, including Indigenous leadership, the private sector, to have solutions. And I want to see real progress. And this is why I'm a fan of, of revenue sharing, why I'm a fan of, of convening these sort of nation-to-nation approaches where when it comes to governance, I want less being done by the bureaucrats, quite frankly, uh, in Indigenous Services Canada. I would like to see uh, your organization help us solve the issue for some of the longstanding claims out there. Uh, in terms of having First Nations lead the governance practice for examining overlapping claims between certain nations, um, to look at governance reform, to look at revenue sharing. I think it should be less of the old department mentality because now there's exceptional leaders, lawyers, uh, nonprofit uh, advisors from an Indigenous background that I really think the federal government should partner and let them take leadership uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to waiting for the department. Because as I said, I'm one of the few MPs who's looked into all of these uh, white papers and, and royal commissions. I want more action and I'm willing to to partner with with you and with, with leadership across the country to, to make sure that some of the stuff that has now been touched upon in several commissions or studies is acted upon. I want action. Let's talk. All right. I'm going to hold you to that when you become leader because that's what it's all about. And you mentioned the RCAP report, the TRC 94 calls to action, missing murder indigenous women and girls. Uh, if there's two before that as well, the Hawthorne report and the Penner report. Hawthorne is where Citizens Plus came yeah, out. That's uh, it. And, and I personally, I, I like the book uh, Alan Karen's wrote on Citizens Plus. I know all of these things have people have fans of some of the con- uh, concepts. Other people do, aren't fans. Uh, and I've, I've spoken even with uh, Kelly LaRocca, the chief uh, in uh, the Mississaugas of Scugog Island in my own riding, my own that's, community. That's the only First Nation in your riding. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. I have good relations. Kelly is an example of a great, yeah. uh, smart, uh, young Indigenous leader. We agree on many things, don't agree on all things, but have a that's very it. good relationship. And uh, that's where I say the capacity and the, the potential of pushing things out of the bureaucracy to be led by First Nation leaders, I think is where we need the, the, the next decade plus of progress to come from. Well, like I say, action and implementation of these recommendations is key. So that's a good statement. We'll hold you to that. And then having, and, and you touched on that, if we're going to get better policy and better legislation and better programs in place to respect First Nations title rights and jurisdiction, it's all about access to the policy and legislative decision makers. So even by having you coming on the podcast today is access. And even by talking with your relationship with the chief at Skugog is, is good access. And, and that's really what it's all about. And you don't agree on everything, but let's agree mm-hmm. on the two or three things we want to get done and implement it. So that's a strong statement. 
I want to talk now about this current throne speech just before COVID-19 came in. And I've said this before, this is the first time ever in the history of Canada under any government that there was a chapter, a whole chapter in a throne speech. Because you know as well as I do that it outlines government's priorities, right? We used to get one or two sentences before. But through advocacy efforts and everything else, yes, a chapter. And in that chapter, there were six or seven points. And I want to get your reaction to these points because I want to gauge your uh, where you're at on all of these six or seven key points that I as nationally advocated for. So the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that there be federal legislation in place, the reestablishment of a national treaty commissioner to implement Section 35 of Canada's Constitution, which recognizes existing Aboriginal treaty rights. You know, our treaties, nation to nation. Uh, it talked about implementation of MMIW, the Missing Murder Indigenous Women and Girls, and you talked about that already in terms of the action plan to implement MMIW. It talked about closing the infrastructure gap by 2030 between First Nations people and Canada. So infrastructure, so broadband, housing, water, infra all those things, infrastructure gap to be closed. Then it talked about mental health. The national youth suicide crisis amongst our people is epidemic, five to seven times national average. Then it also talked about C91, language implementation fully, and then C92, child welfare, 40,000 children in foster care, not acceptable. So in the throne speech, and then along comes COVID-19 and everything falls off. But what are your thoughts when you become leader of the Conservative Party and maybe the Prime Minister of Canada in terms of throne speeches, priorities, as evidence in this last throne speech? Well, listen, there's a lot in there, Chief, and I can talk about any of it individually. But with me, you're going to have more action and less speeches. Um, I, I really fear, I, I do think Justin Trudeau wants to make progress. I have no question about it. But he's the most detached prime minister I've ever seen. In fact, he basically delegates everything to everyone. And there's no ownership. As I said, I, as you know, I've, I was very critical of, of when he removed the names off of buildings and, and symbolic gestures as opposed to making real progress. And even on uh, 92, I spoke in debate in the House on that bill, the, the uh, Aboriginal Child Welfare Bill. Mm -hmm. I think probably one of the most important elements of reconciliation. It was literally the last bill he introduced and got through in the parliament, his, his, his first term uh, parliament as prime minister. If you want to talk about a lack of priorities, Chief, it's using closure to rush this in before he goes to the polls. And if... If the delay in that bill was a result of comprehensive consultations with provinces and First Nation leadership, I might understand. But if you actually talk, there was very little uh, detailed consultation. And I quoted the, the, the Tina Fontaine inquiry from Manitoba when I spoke in the House on this. Um, the consultations are needed because the many places where Tina Fontaine was failed Many of them are provincial service administration. And so um, I, I actually think the, the Trudeau government talks, talks a lot, but doesn't act. So what you're mm -hmm. going to get from a Prime Minister O'Toole, um, I'm not going to try and compete on a word count basis with the throne speech with him, but you'll have my phone. You'll say, O'Toole, you made this commitment in the next year. Where, where's it at? And I want you to hold me to account as as someone representing First Nation communities from coast to coast to coast. So I will be a hands-on roll-up-the-sleeves prime minister, uh, unlike Mr. Trudeau, who's, who's often faced 
focused on on symbolism and 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 rhetoric. I want you to hold me to account for progress and actions, and and you have my word on that. Within that mix of things, the child welfare I think is critical, mm-hmm. as is infrastructure. If we've learned anything from COVID, particularly broadband and other things, uh, needs to be rolled out, uh, especially to rural Canada and and Indigenous rural communities as well, for that opportunity not fall behind as we're lo- relying more more on this. Um, I'll be straight up with you. You know how we say we'll we'll agree and disagree on something. I'm not a fan of UNDRIP. And here's the reason. Our Supreme Court of Canada developed the duty to consult and Indigenous engagement far before the UN did any work on this topic. And I'm, I'm a bit of a UN reform-minded person because when I was in the military, I saw the failures of Rwanda and where the UN's own bureaucracy failed to prevent a genocide. Romeo Dallaire is a friend. I know many veterans who are still struggling with their demons uh, from really a failure of, of, of UN action. Uh, the WHO, I've been asking about the Chinese manipulation of that agency for many years. So I don't want us waiting for some body in New York to say, we need to do better and we need better outcomes in terms of reconciliation. So as I said, I. I'm glad you're recording this because mm-hmm. I want you to hold my feet to the fire. You know, your your advocacy is is part of that. And I want to be known as someone that that really makes progress. And in partnership, here's 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 I'll turn on your head that the National Treaty Commissioner, I would much rather that be a First Nation-led governance board uh, making real progress. Because I really do think nothing fast comes out of that department. There's very well-meaning people working within it, but I've seen the 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 approach is old school and piecemeal. Whereas I think the capacity within Indigenous leadership um, could really really set the framework that the government mm-hmm. comes in and partners, as opposed to picking a man or a woman to be some uh, commissioner. It's almost a hundred-year-old concept. Let let's build a partnership because, as you know, and I think we've talked this before. When I was at the cabinet table on resolution of of uh, of claims, and when Minister Valcour at the time would bring things to our committee, there was a lot of talk, and there was real desire on the behalf of Prime Minister Harper to make progress. But when we'd be looking at these things, and then we'd look at how many overlaps there were between First Nation communities. Um, claiming title over overlapping areas, I think those overlaps and resolution of some of these things are best handled First Nation to First Nation as part of an overall resolution framework. And so why Mm. would we not really empower maybe the AFN to come up with a a policy proposal funded by the federal government, but really empowering Indigenous leadership to make real strides? Well, again, like as National Chief, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a conservative, I'm not NDP, I'm not a green or anything. Uh, but I've got to have a relationship with all leaders and all parties to influence policy and legislation going forward. And uh, so I, I believe there were concepts, again, all from a First Nations perspective, it all comes down to recognition of self-determination and self-governance. It all comes down to uh, recognition of Aboriginal rights and title and jurisdiction and working towards treaty implementation according to the spirit and intent. And we ought to find mechanisms and ways to find uh, ways to do that. Because even in terms of land claims, if you can find ways to speed up and, and, 
and uh, deal with the lawful obligations that the crown owes to First Nations people. It's not only satisfying a debt owed to First Nations people, it creates economic development and economic action within the provinces and territories. Uh, and I just look back home into Saskatchewan. In 1992, treaty land entitlement was, was worked out between the federal government and provincial government. It was uh, Prime Minister Mulroney and, and Premier uh, Romano, and then later Grant Devine to implement TLE. Well, do you know what kind of impact that had on the economy? Mm -hmm. Like almost a billion dollars flowing into the economy. All I'm saying is we need to keep working together because these lawful obligations from the Crown need to find ways to be implemented. I want to go now to something that's kind of current. You, you see what's going on with the killing of Chantel Moore and, uh, and, and Rodney Levi out east and as well the, the our excessive use of force with the arrest of, of Chief Alan Adam. So policing is a big issue and racism is a big issue, whether it be racism or systemic racism. But we're four and a half percent of Canada's population, but the jails are filled 30 percent with First Nations people. So looking at that whole issue, what are your thoughts and ideas and plans going forward on how to address policing and our justice for First Nations people across Canada, if you're a prime minister? Sure. In fact, this has been an area, Chief, that I've been talking about for several years. In fact, in my leadership bid three years ago, uh, one of the policies that was in that platform and is in this platform relates to a community-based policing program that I'm recommending for the RCMP and an RCMP asset to be, to be uh, loaned out to other forces across the country is the Aboriginal liaison officer program where this would be a, a an indigenous canadian that becomes part of the rcmp and then provides capacity not just for the rcmp but other large municipal or provincial forces with a large on or off reserve indigenous population this point of contact could also be a point of contact for families in terms of of missing and murdered cold cases and things like this, where there's a sense that these are forgotten cases, but to have a resource that's dedicated, federally funded uh, as part of the federal uh, jurisdiction mandate. Uh, this has been something I've been talking about for many years because community-based policing is about building trust at a community level, particularly where there's been an erosion of trust uh, whether it's with minority uh, communities in, in, a, in an urban environment or whether it's First Nation community, um, it, it, it takes a while to build back that trust and you almost need a dedicated resource to it. And I really think this Aboriginal Liaison Officer Program could have a huge impact, not just within the RCMP, but within the police forces so that that person can be a trainer can be a, a conduit for the, the community. Uh, I've seen it in Toronto. I worked in Toronto. There's a significant Indigenous population within, uh, within Toronto. That could be a resource on the Toronto force, someone who is trained and specialized at building trust, building, building connections, um, because that's what I think we need to do. Uh, I really do think there's going to be uh, a lot of time and, and, and trust needed to be built back up because there have been some failures in the past, no question about mm -hmm. it. There's also, as you said, a too high of proportion in terms of uh, incarceration. 
um, the 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 justice system now accommodates, and so the indigenous background of an offender can be considered. And as you know, there are also um, um, you know restorative justice principles and other things. This is even stuff. You know, I'm 47. I went to law school uh, in 2000. Uh, even then, there was sentencing circles and restorative justice, and these sorts of things were being taught to my generation of lawyers. So we are we are making some progress, but there's a lot more to do. And I think in terms of the policing role itself, building in that capacity, that community trust capacity, is something I've been talking about for many years. So with community-based policing, and, and I'll, I'm going to agree, that's one of the answers. But one of the challenges is that right now, the, community, the, the policing program is a program. And it's right now it's jointly funded, 52% from the federal government, then 48% from the provinces. And so they have tripartite, community tripartite arrangements are between policing. For, for But the issue is it's a program. And so we've been pushing now to get policing as an essential service. Would you support that legislation going forward, having police as an essential service through proper legislation? Well, I think police are an essential service. It, it's a matter, as you said, you broke down the cross-jurisdictional elements here and it uh, I don't think anybody, and it, First Nation, provincial, municipal, federal, no one would disagree that that public safety and policing is essential. It's a matter of the funding mechanism, and we we know um, Premier Kenny, for example, is re-examining um, uh, the potential of a provincial police force in Alberta, and that would then displace the RCMP nice contract services quite like my province. I'm from Ontario and we've always had the OPP as I've grown up. And so there, there hasn't been that federally contracted RCMP mandate. So I do think uh, I agree with the essential service, no question, Chief. It's mm -hmm. a matter of how do we get all the partners, including First Nation, down and, and come up with um, how it's funded, how it's rolled out. And as I said, I would like to see um, part of it being this uh, Aboriginal liaison officer program so that there is that direct connection with with the community and the force. Well, that's part of it. Um, okay, so we talked about OPP in Ontario and the SQ in Quebec and then possibly Alberta looking at their own police force. But you're right, the RCMP is contracted in other provinces and territories and in some First Nations communities as well. Um, and then some First Nations communities are, or First Nations are starting to look at their own standalone police only if and when there is a legislative statutory uh, basis for it. So there's adequate human and financial resources in place in, in comparison to uh, OPP or the, and or the RCMP. This next point I want to raise, because establishing our own policing systems is part of the inherent right, and, and that's great once we get to that legislation piece. But the RCMP, um, and I had Commissioner Brenda Lucky on my podcast as well, and we talked about systemic racism within the RCMP. And I've also said at some point that it's not just getting policing as an essential service into a piece of legislation. There's the other piece, which means a review of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Force and the legislation that's there and are the program and policies, for example. Uh, and I'm, here's some examples, because it has to be a policy overview for if you're going to introduce body cams. If you're going to look at de-escalation training, if you're going to have a zero pol tolerance policy for excessive use of force by the RCMP, um, policing is an essential service. All these things 
need an RCMP overview. And that's something we're currently pushing for. If you become the Prime Minister of Canada, would you support that RCMP overview in terms of legislation and our policy overview from an effective and efficient perspective? But even in terms of an oversight, the civilian oversight body for the RCMP? Um, well, certainly the oversight, um, if that needs to be improved upon, I don't have a high degree. I know the there's a complaint process and there's an oversight process. Perhaps it needs to be modernized and perhaps... Uh, better membership from from some groups that are are losing losing faith in the institution. Um, I'm definitely open to that. Um, I'm not a micromanaging type politician, so I don't think politicians should tell the RCMP what to do. But I certainly think de-escalation, all of these elements need to be part of modern policing, uh, and are. It's a matter of making sure that they're as effective as possible and that we have an environment where there's zero tolerance for uh, you know, discrimination or, or uh, whether it's anti-Black, whether it's, it's, it's uh, against Indigenous Canadians, and perhaps making sure, you know, I think law enforcement have a very difficult job to do. And in Ontario, going back to uh, the gov provincial government of Bob Ray, when um, a lot of healthcare institutions changed their mandate, and you saw a lot more mental health cases on streets of Canada. And are we making sure that you know law enforcement is now the first point of contact for people that could have substance abuse issues, underlying mental health, um, you know, cases where they they uh, they have trauma and and uh, a whole range of of medical issues that really law enforcement aren't trained for. And how can we make sure that we best make use of of law enforcement to do law enforcement and perhaps have some mental health supports in large urban centers that, that triages issues before they are always just diverted to police? As someone that wore a uniform chief, <clears throat> I have so much respect for the men and women that have a very difficult job to do. I hold them to a very high standard but I also know firsthand that um, the vast majority are doing it because they believe in their country, their community, and are trying to help people. And mm -hmm. so how can we make sure that um, we're not making them the front line for everything based on our healthcare system, on, on you know, homelessness, and a range of things that really aren't law enforcement? So right. I think in terms of a review, um, if we're reviewing that sort of uh, training mandate, are we equipping them for these situations? Even in my own community, there's been some uh, instances where the police respond to someone who's been reported as violent by people in a, in a community. Uh, they get there and it's, it, it's a rapid situation. They don't really get the time to understand the mental health background to this person. So how can we train, how can we equip, and how can we maybe use other supports within the community? Um, I'm open to all of that because I, I do want to make sure our men and women are supported and that we restore trust in these institutions with some groups that are losing trust. No, I've, uh, I can relate to the comment about people in uniform. I have three older brothers that are retired World Canadian Mounted Police RCMP members. So I can relate to the whole idea about men in uniform and serving uh, their mm -hmm. community and their people and their country. I want to move on now, Aaron, to a few more points, just a few more questions we'll be wrapping up here. Uh, you have a very expansive platform. 
There's no question. And uh, you have uh, reference to First Nations people, Indigenous people in your platform. Why do you think dealing with First Nations issues will be good for Canada as, as, a, as a country? Well, when I when I use the phrase sort of igniting the Indigenous economy, I, I really think the potential is the potential of Canada. And, you know, we've talked a lot about one of the largest uh, younger demographic groups in Canada are Indigenous Canadians. And not only do does our commitment to reconciliation mean we have to make sure there's there's better outcomes and better supports than previous generations. Just think if we get it right, how it benefits the entire country. So this is why I think um, when I speak about reconciliation, which I have in the House of Commons, I have as an MP, I have in my own community, I always feel it's it's a Canadian dialogue. And when we use collaboration, participation, connection, understanding, respect, these are things that I think enlist more Canadians in the cause mm -hmm. to make sure that the potential of uh, Indigenous Canadians is truly reached and, and tapped. And when I'm not always going back to the resource economy, but it is important to me. If you look, whether it's diamonds in the Arctic, uh, uh, oil and gas uh, with the Fort Mackay First Nation in in Fort McMurray. Uh, you, you know, I met an entrepreneur, Trent Fiquette, uh with the Steel River Group, bringing supply chain networks for pipelines and other things. These are all in the last generation examples of Indigenous leaders, whether at a chief level with Fort Mackay or an entrepreneur like Trent, stepping up, building capacity, employing and uh, generating revenue for Indigenous communities, Indigenous-led businesses. We've just scratched the surface at the at the potential here, Chief. And uh, mm -hmm. this is what I want to see. And obviously, as a conservative, as a free market, as someone that supports resource sector, I'm obviously inclined there. But I've also personally seen the huge uh, benefit and potential. And uh, that's why I think the, the whole post-COVID recovery, when I hear suggestions that the liberals are going to try and turn this into some uh, green designed recovery to to make the editorial board at the Toronto Star feel happy. I want to make sure folks you represent are employed, are healthy, are successful, are motivated, are passionate, um, because then when we have that success, we generate revenue for the band, we have employment. If you you know we're looking mm. at, say, a rural community, then we can start to tackle, as you talked earlier, some of the mental health uh, outcomes that are unacceptable. I do a lot of work on mental health stemming from my time uh, in the military and as veterans minister. Um, I think the first point of success for any Canadian family, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, is the well-being of the family. Do mom and dad have a job if mm -hmm. they want to work to provide for their family? Are they able to live in a safe community and, and, and have the infrastructure and the and their needs met that is the sort of well-being that i want to focus on and that's why the economic recovery can't be some designer focus group uh marketing board out of a toronto advertising agency which is kind of justin trudeau's strategy mine is going to be to empower communities and uh and canadians to to build up this great country because when we do things canadians do them 
in the best way in the world with the highest standards that we expect of ourselves. We should be very proud of anything we produce here in Canada, whether mm-hmm. it comes from the ground or it comes from somebody's mind. Well, it's what we've always said. Dealing with First Nations issues, there are Canadian issues. And if the gap starts to close, if we see continued and investments in education and housing and water and infrastructure and broadband and and education and training for the fastest growing segment of Canada's population is young First Nations men and women. When you invest in that human capital, you'll have huge returns on investment. I I believe it's 27 billion to Canada's overall GDP growth if uh, education training was invested and that socioeconomic gap closes. Now, my last point, I always ask this question to all my guests on the podcasts. In light of everything that's going on in this country and in the world, in light of COVID-19, the economy and the environment, uh, systemic racism, lack of rights recognition, I want to ask you, what gives you hope? The real honor I have in this job, Chief, is meeting Canadians from all walks of life, from all backgrounds. Obviously, my travel's been curtailed uh, in this campaign a little bit, but I've, 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 I've slept in the guest rooms and on couches of Canadians. I've been to Legion halls and, and community organizations. And the potential of our people is, is astounding. And whenever I look at the challenges Canada faces, and we do have many challenges, I compare that to any other country in the world. And our opportunity is incredible. And we generally have a, a, a society that promotes um, you know, responsibility and, and respect. There, there are always areas we have to improve. But if you look at, at the opportunity that Canada represents for, for its people, that is what empowers me. I really do think we are the greatest country in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people don't like quoting Sir John A. Macdonald these days. I do. He, he said when we were forming this country, you know, this country with a threat of the U.S. after the, the Civil War and the battles there, uh, French, English, First Nation, a vast geography, uh, fairly sparse population. He said way back then that Canada would be the greatest country in the universe, provided we did not allow it to become divided. And so what, mm-hmm. I, what I do is I, I'm empowered by the huge potential of the country and um, I don't let any of our challenges get me down on the fact that I, I do think we we owe it to our country to always try and be more united, uh, more respectful, uh, provide more opportunity for more Canadians, including Canadians from Indigenous backgrounds. And that's going to be my, my guiding star. And uh, the gap you talked about, Chief, that's what I want you to do to me is... How are you closing the gap, Prime Minister? Um, I want to build partnerships. So how can we close it together, right? So that's got to be a commitment to reach the full potential of of what is a great country. Well, Mr. Aaron O'Toole, thank you so much for coming on to the Akamemuk podcast and and best of luck on your journey. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I love the fact the term means perseverance because that's what I think we've all done over the last number of months in COVID. We've persevered and uh, let's come through that and be a success together. So I look forward to working with you, Chief. Thanks again. On another note, I want to acknowledge the family of 
Joseph Tokwiro Norton on his passing. We want to lift up the family and the community, thank them for sharing Grand Chief Joe Norton with all of us across Turtle Island. He's done so much for Kahnawalge. He was a staunch supporter of our rights, title, and jurisdiction and self-determination as First Nations people. He will be sadly missed, but we thank him for his contributions and his efforts, and we pray for his safe journey onto the other side where we'll see all of our loved ones again. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemet podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Thank you.